Section 1 of Chapter 17 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Carpenter. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 17, Section 1. On the 18th of January, 1691, the king, having been detained some days by adverse winds, went aboard at Gravesend. Four yachts had been fitted up for him and his retinue. Among his attendants were Norfolk, Ormond, Devonshire, Dorset, Portland, Monmouth, Zulstein, and the Bishop of London. Two distinguished admirals, Cloudsley Shovel and George Rook, commanded the men of war which formed the convoy. The passage was tedious and disagreeable. During many hours the fleet was becalmed off the Godwin Sands, and it was not till the fifth day that the soundings proved the coast of Holland to be near. The sea fog was so thick that no land could be seen, and it was not thought safe for the ships to proceed further in the darkness. William, tired out by the voyage, and impatient to be once more in his beloved country, determined to land in an open boat. The noblemen who were in his train tried to dissuade him from risking so valuable a life, but when they found that his mind was made up, they insisted on sharing the danger. That danger proved to be more serious than they had expected. It was supposed that in an hour the party would be ashore. But great masses of floating ice impeded the progress of the skiff. The night came on, the fog grew thicker, the waves broke over the king and the courtiers. Once the keel struck on a sandbank, and was with great difficulty got off. The hardiest mariners showed some signs of uneasiness. But William, through the whole night, was as composed as if he had been in the drawing-room at Kensington. For shame, he said to one of the dismayed sailors, are you afraid to die in my company? A bold Dutch seaman ventured to spring out, and with great difficulty swam and scrambled through breakers, ice and mud, to firm ground. Here he discharged a musket and lighted a fire as a signal that he was safe. None of his fellow passengers, however, thought it prudent to follow his example. They lay tossing in sight of the flame which he had kindled, till the first pale light of a January morning showed them that they were close to the island of Goray. The king and his lords, stiff with cold and covered with icicles, gladly landed to warm and rest themselves. After reposing some hours in the hut of a peasant, William proceeded to the Hague. He was impatiently expected, therefore, Though the fleet which had brought him was not visible from the shore, the royal salutes had been heard through the mist, and had apprised the whole coast of his arrival. Thousands had assembled at Hanslerdyke to welcome him with applause which came from their hearts and which went to his heart. That was one of the few white days of a life, beneficent indeed and glorious, but far from happy. After more than two years passed in a strange land, the exile had again set foot on his native soil. He heard again the language of his nursery. He saw again the scenery and the architecture which were inseparably associated in his mind with the recollections of childhood and the sacred feelings of home. The dreary mounds of sand, shells and weeds on which the waves of the German Ocean broke, the interminable meadows intersected by trenches, the straight canals, the villas bright with paint and adorned with quaint images and inscriptions. He had lived, during many weary months, among a people who did not love him, who did not understand him, who could never forget that he was a foreigner. 
Those Englishmen who served him most faithfully served him without enthusiasm, without personal attachment, and merely from a sense of public duty. In their hearts they were sorry that they had no choice but between an English tyrant and a Dutch deliverer. All was now changed. William was among a population by which he was adored, as Elizabeth had been adored when she rode through her army at Tilbury, as Charles II had been adored when he landed at Dover. It is true that the old enemies of the House of Orange had not been inactive during the absence of the Stadtholder. There had been, not indeed clamors, but mutterings against him. He had, it was said, neglected his native land for his new kingdom. Whenever the dignity of the English flag, whenever the prosperity of the English trade was concerned, he forgot that he was a Hollander. But as soon as his well-remembered face was again seen, all jealousy, all coldness was at an end. There was not a boar, not a fisherman, not an artisan in the crowd which lined the roads from Hanseldijk to the Hague, whose heart did not swell with pride at the thought that the first minister of Holland had become a great king, had freed the English, and had conquered the Irish. It would have been madness in William to travel from Hampton Court to Westminster without a guard, but in his own land he needed no swords or carbines to defend him. Do not keep the people off, he cried. Let them come close to me. They are all my good friends. He soon learned that sumptuous preparations were making for his entrance into the Hague. At first he murmured and objected. He detested, he said, noise and display. The necessary cost of the war was quite heavy enough. He hoped that his fellow townsmen would consider him as a neighbor, born and bred among them, and would not pay him so bad a compliment as to treat him ceremoniously. But all his expostulations were vain. The Hollanders, simple and parsimonious as their ordinary habits were, had set their hearts on giving their illustrious countrymen a reception suited to his dignity and to his merit. He found it necessary to yield. On the day of his triumph the concourse was immense. All the wheeled carriages and horses of the province were too few for the multitude of those who flocked to the show. Many thousands came sliding or skating along the frozen canals from Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Leiden, Harlem, Delft. At ten in the morning of the 26th of January, the great bell of the townhouse gave the signal. Sixteen hundred substantial burghers, well-armed and clad in the finest dresses which were to be found in the recesses of their wardrobe, kept order in the crowded streets. Balconies and scaffolds, embowered in evergreens and hung with tapestry, hid the windows. The royal coach, escorted by an army of halberdiers and running footmen, and followed by a long train of splendid equipages, passed under the numerous arches rich with carving and painting, amidst incessant shouts of long live the king our stadtholder. The front of the town-house and the whole circuit of the market-place were in a blaze of brilliant colors. Civic crowns, trophies, emblems of art, of sciences, of commerce, and of agriculture appeared everywhere. In one place William saw portrayed the glorious actions of his ancestors. There was the silent prince, the founder of the Batavian Commonwealth, passing the muse with his warriors. There was the more impetuous Maurice leading a charge at Newport. A little further on, the hero might retrace the eventful story of his own life. He was a child at his widowed mother's knee. He was at the altar with Derry's hand in his. 
he was landing at Torbay. He was swimming through the Boyne. There, too, was a boat amidst the ice and the breakers, and above it was most appropriately inscribed, in the majestic language of Rome, the saying of the great Roman, What dost thou fear? Thou hast Caesar on board. The task of furnishing the Latin mottoes had been entrusted to two men who, till Bentley appeared, held the highest place among the classical scholars of that age. Spanheim, whose knowledge of the Roman medals was unrivaled, imitated, not unsuccessfully, the noble consciousness of those ancient legends which he had assiduously studied, and he was assisted by Gravius, who then filled a chair at Utrecht, and whose just reputation had drawn to that university multitudes of students from every part of Protestant Europe. When the night came, fireworks were exhibited on the great tank which washes the palaces of the Federation. That tank was now as hard as marble, and the Dutch boasted that nothing had ever been seen, even on the terrace of Versailles, more brilliant than the effect produced by the innumerable cascades of flame which were reflected in the smooth mirror of ice. The English lords congratulated their master on his immense popularity. Yes, said he, but I am not the favorite. The shouting was nothing to what it would have been if Mary had been with me. A few hours after the triumphal entry, the king attended a sitting of the states-general. His last appearance among them had been on the day in which he embarked for England. He had then, amidst the broken words and loud weepings of those grave senators, thanked them for the kindness which, which they had watched over his childhood, trained his young mind, and supported his authority in his riper years, and he had solemnly commended his beloved wife to their care. He now came back among them the king of three kingdoms, the head of the greatest coalition that Europe had seen during a hundred and eighty years, and nothing was heard in the hall but applause and congratulations. But this time the streets of the Hog were overflowing with the equipages and retinues of princes and ambassadors who came flocking to the great Congress. First appeared the ambitious and ostentatious Frederick, Elector of Brandenburg, who, a few years later, took the title of King of Prussia. Then arrived the young Elector of Bavaria, the Regent of Württemberg, the Landgraves of Hesse Castle and Hesse Darmstadt, and a long train of sovereign princes sprung from the illustrious houses of Brunswick, of Saxony, of Holstein, and of Nassau. The Marquis of Gastanega, governor of the Spanish Netherlands, repaired to the assembly from the viceregal court of Brussels. Extraordinary ministers had been sent by the emperor, by the kings of Spain, Poland, Denmark, and Sweden, and by the Duke of Savoy. There was scarcely room in the town and the neighborhood for the English lords and gentlemen and the German counts and barons whom curiosity or official duty had brought to the place of meeting. The grave capital of the most thrifty and industrious of nations was as gay as Venice in Carnival. The walks cut among those noble limes and elms in which the villa of the Prince of Orange is embosomed were gay with the plumes, the stars, the flowing wigs, the embroidered coats, and the gold-hilted swords of the gallants of London, Berlin, and Vienna. With the nobles were mingled sharpers not less gorgeously attired than they. At night the hazard tables were thronged, and the theatres were filled to the roof. Princely banquets followed one another in rapid succession. The meats were served in gold, and, according to that old Teutonic fashion with which Shakespeare had made his countrymen familiar, as often as any of the great princes proposed a health, the kettle-drums and trumpets sounded. 
Some English lords, particularly Devonshire, gave entertainments which vied with those of sovereigns. It was remarked that the German potentates, though generously disposed to be litigious and punctilious about etiquette, associated, on this occasion, in an unceremonious manner, and seemed to have forgotten their passion for genealogical and heraldic controversy. The taste for wine, which was then characteristic of their nation, they had not forgotten. At the table of the Elector of Brandenburg, much mirth was caused by the gravity of the statesmen of Holland, who, sober themselves, confuted out of Grotius and Puffendorf the nonsense stuttered by the tipsy nobles of the empire. One of those nobles swallowed so many bumpers that he tumbled into the turf fire, and was not pulled out till his fine velvet suit had been burned. In the midst of all this revelry, business was not neglected. A formal meeting of the Congress was held at which William presided. In a short and dignified speech, which was speedily circulated throughout Europe, he set forth the necessity of firm union and strenuous exertion. The profound respect which, which he was heard by that splendid assembly caused bitter mortification to his enemies both in England and in France. The German potentates were bitterly reviled for yielding precedence to an upstart. Indeed, the most illustrious among them paid to him such marks of deference as they would scarcely have deigned to pay to the imperial majesty, mingled with the crowd in his antechamber, and at his table behaved as respectfully as any English lord in waiting. In one caricature, the allied princes were represented as muzzled bearers, some with crowns, some with caps of state. William had them all on a chain and was teaching them to dance. In another caricature, he appeared taking his ease in an armchair, with his feet on a cushion, and his hat on his head, while the electors of Brandenburg and Bavaria, uncovered, occupied small stools on the right and the left. The crowd of landgraves and sovereign dukes stood at humble distance, and Gastanjega, the unworthy successor of Alva, awaited the orders of the heretic tyrant on bended knee. It was soon announced by authority that, before the beginning of the summer, two hundred and twenty thousand men would be in the field against France. The contingent which each of the allied powers was to furnish was made known. Matters about which it would have been inexpedient to put forth any declaration were privately discussed by the King of England and his allies. On this occasion, as on every other important occasion during his reign, he was his own Minister of Foreign Affairs. It was necessary for the sake of form that he should be attended by a secretary of state, and Nottingham had therefore followed him to Holland. But Nottingham, though, in matters concerning the internal government of England he enjoyed a large share of his master's confidence, knew little more about the business of the Congress than what he saw in the gazettes. This mode of transacting business would now be thought to be most unconstitutional and many writers applying the standards of their own age to the transactions of a former age have severely blamed william for acting without the advice of his ministers and his ministers for submitting to be kept in ignorance of transactions which deeply concern the honour of the crown and the welfare of the nation yet surely the presumption is that what the most honest and honourable men of both parties nottingham for example among the tories and summers among the whigs not only did but avowed, cannot have been altogether inexcusable, and a very sufficient excuse will without difficulty be found. 
the doctrine that the sovereign is not responsible is doubtless as old as any part of our constitution the doctrine that his ministers are responsible is also of immemorial antiquity that where there is no responsibility there can be no trustworthy security against maladministration is a doctrine which in our age and country few people will be inclined to dispute from these three propositions it plainly follows that the administration is likely to be best conducted when the sovereign performs no public act without the concurrence and instrumentality of a minister this argument is perfectly sound but we must remember that arguments are constructed in one way and governments in another in logic none but an idiot admits the premises and denies the legitimate conclusion but in practice we see that great and enlightened communities often persist generation after generation in asserting principles and refusing to act upon those principles it may be doubted whether any real polity that ever existed has exactly corresponded to the pure idea of that polity according to the pure idea of constitutional royalty the prince reigns and does not govern and constitutional royalty as it now exists in england comes nearer than in any other country to the pure idea yet it would be a great error to imagine that our princes merely reign and never govern in the seventeenth century both whigs and tories thought it not only the right but the duty of the first magistrate to govern all parties agreed in blaming charles the second for not being his own prime minister all parties agreed in praising james for being his own lord high admiral and all parties thought it natural and reasonable that william should be his own foreign secretary it may be observed that the ablest and best informed of those who have censured the manner in which the negotiations of that time were conducted are scarcely consistent with themselves for while they blame william for being his own ambassador plenipotentiary at the hog they praise him for being his own commander-in-chief in ireland yet where is the distinction in principle between the two cases surely every reason which can be brought to prove that he violated the constitution when by his own sole authority he made compacts with the emperor and the elector of brandenburg will equally prove that he violated the constitution when by his own sole authority he ordered one column to plunge into the water at oldbridge and another to cross the bridge of the slyne if the constitution gave him the command of the forces of the state the constitution gave him also the direction of the foreign relations of the state on what principle then can it be maintained that he was at liberty to exercise the former power without consulting anybody but that he was bound to exercise the latter power in conformity with the advice of a minister will it be said that an heir in diplomacy is likely to be more injurious to the country than an heir in strategy surely not it is hardly conceivable that any blunder which william might have made at the hague could have been more injurious to the public interest than a defeat at the boyne or will it be said that there was greater reason for placing confidence in his military than in his diplomatic skills surely not in a war he showed some great moral and intellectual qualities but as a tactician he did not rank high and of his many campaigns only two were decidedly successful in the talents of a negotiator on the other hand he has never been surpassed of the interests and tempers of the continental courts he knew more than all his privy council together 
Some of his ministers were doubtless men of great ability, excellent orators in the House of Lords, and versed in our insular politics. But, in the deliberations of the Congress, Carmarthen and Nottingham would have been found as far inferior to him as he would have been found inferior to them in a parliamentary debate on a question purely English. The coalition against France was his work. He alone had joined together the parts of that great whole, and he alone could keep them together. If he had trusted that vast and complicated machine in the hands of any of his subjects, it would instantly have fallen to pieces. End of section 1. Recording by Richard Carpenter in Seattle, Washington.